Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. We've been looking at Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, dealing with uh, the temptation to, to not see Christ as supreme over all. And Paul is reminding the church that Christ is above every power, every authority, everything that we might put in his place. This morning we will see Christ as above all substitutes that would take his place as we look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle Do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the truth, the gospel. In the midst of our current fuel crisis, I have heard, and I wonder if you have also heard, reports of people putting all sorts of other things in their gas tank, thinking maybe they can stretch out that tank of gas if they water it down a little bit with some water, or maybe put some bleach in to clean the system out so that it runs farther, or perhaps, I believe it or not, did hear a report of somebody adding caffeine to their gas, thinking, surely that which energizes me to go faster and farther in the morning would have the same effect on my engine. The idea is what I have in the tank is not enough. It's not getting the job done. I need something else. I need a substitute. Now, what is obviously foolish when it comes to our fuel is sadly too common when it comes to our faith. We look to substitutes because we don't believe that the work of Jesus is enough. And we feel like we have to add to or replace the work of Jesus. Last week, as Randy took us through the previous verses, we saw the completeness of the work of Christ in verses 14 through 15. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is a complete and thorough victory. Canceling our record and triumphing over his enemies and ours. And so Paul, in light of that thorough, complete, full victory in verse 6, urged them to stick with the pure gospel. Just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, so walk in Him. That which you heard and received at the beginning, the pure gospel, stick with that. You don't need anything else. 
But when we begin to think that Christ is not enough, that what he did is not enough, we seek to supplement or replace his work in our lives. And in these verses here, God's people are warned not to be deceived by practices that would replace the fully sufficient work of Christ for our salvation and for our life of following him. We look to substitutes because we don't believe that what Jesus already did is enough. And in these verses, we see why substitutes can never replace or even add to what Jesus has done to save you and to make you complete. And as Paul talks it through, he shows us that substitutes lack substance, they lack connection, and they lack power. The first thing we'll look at is that substitutes lack substance. The Colossians were being called away and tempted by all kinds of substitutes. And substitutes can be tricky because they can look at times like good and godly things. See what Paul was warning the Colossians against in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, since Paul mentions the Sabbath and he had just been talking about circumcision a few verses earlier, we can understand that one of the challenges facing this church was the call to go back to and embrace and adopt practices from Old Testament law. We see throughout the New Testament that this was a problem. Some Jewish Christians taught that to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, you had to go all the way and obey the law of Moses, which meant for the men you had to be circumcised if you weren't already. Everyone had to observe the strict dietary laws, and you had to celebrate the prescribed feasts and holidays in a specific way. And that seems to make sense, right? That has an appearance of of wisdom because God himself prescribed those practices. Who are we to set them aside? And the answer is, we don't set them aside. Scripture itself tells us, teaches us, that those things are set aside now because they are fulfilled in Christ. Scripture itself shows us how the practices that God gave in the Old Testament, the sacrifices... The feasts and holidays, the dietary laws, all these observances, the washings, everything was fulfilled in Christ and are not a part now of Christian discipleship and obedience. As Paul explains in verse 17, he says, these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. A shadow. If I was standing before you and a light shone behind me, There would be a shadow. Oh, actually, I see one right now from that light. There we go. There's a shadow. If you were just looking at the ground, you could see the shadow and know that I'm coming towards you. And you can see an outline. You'd know it was a a person and not a, a, a cow. You know, maybe, I hope. I hope. You know, the shadow is is... Uh, it's shape without substance. It is image without definition or detail. It tells you something's there, but it doesn't tell you everything about it or what it is. God gave these good things, sacrifices, washings, feasts and festivals and observance of special days. He gave them not as a way of salvation, but to point to the salvation that we have in Christ. We'll be looking at that in great detail next spring as we begin to, uh, this fall, work through the book of Hebrews. 
The laws and practices given by God in the Old Testament taught many things about the salvation that was to come in Christ. Things like how blood would remove sin. Or how the firstborn could represent the whole family and receive either punishment or blessing on behalf of the whole family. We can see how God would, in the the, uh, festivals and appointed feasts, when slaves were released and land was returned to its owners and work ceased, God was pointing to the day when, when people enslaved to sin would be freed and what was lost would be returned and his people would celebrate. Yes, the law was a shadow of something that was coming. It it was shape without definition, but it was not the substance. But it pointed to the reality. And we, likewise, can be easily taken in by shadows that point us to Christ, things that announce the presence of Christ, but which in themselves do not save. If we treat our obedience and even good, godly disciplines and practices, if we treat them as if they are the goal of Christian life, as if they are the source of our salvation and our standing before God, then we have grabbed a shadow and not the reality. Notice the interesting command that Paul gives in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Let no one pass judgment on you. That's a fascinating turn of phrase. He doesn't say, hey, don't judge one another on these things. That's true, and by implication we can learn that here. But what he says is, don't let anyone judge you. Don't put up with someone judging you about these things. What does that mean? Well, let's pause and make sure we understand what the word judge means, because very often that word gets thrown around to mean somebody's opinion, someone's personal take on something. They're a little judgy. You know, we're like a judge on American Idol. Oh, dog, your theology was good, but you were pitchy at the end there. You know, that's, that's not the kind of judging that we're talking about. This word judgment means to render a decision, to declare someone's standing. The church in Colossae was was listening to people who told them, because you you do not observe these special feasts that are in the Old Testament law, because you are not following this dietary code, because you are not living out the Christian way that I think you should, then I therefore judge and decree that you are not of Christ. And you can imagine the Colossian Christians, many of them Gentiles, many of them not as familiar with the word of God, hearing this and thinking, oh no, oh no, we've missed out. And taking that judgment to heart and needing to respond to it and needing to follow the way that these other people were setting out for them. And Paul says, no, don't you put up with that. Don't you let them declare a judgment that only God in his word has the authority to declare. And I say to you as well, don't you let anyone rank you or judge you or approve you on God's behalf based on whether or not you jump through the hoops that they have set out for you. Because those things don't have substance. Even if they are good and godly things, they are the shadow and not the substance. Now to be clear, judgment in itself 
is not always wrong. Jesus tells us and commands us to look at and observe the fruits that exist in one another's lives and to make judgments, to make fair and right judgments about whether or not this person is bearing the fruit of salvation and repentance that they ought to bear. But there's a time when judgment is wrong and intolerable. To Christians who are struggling to understand and apply uh, the freedom that we have in our Christian life, And to a a church, a community that was struggling to to handle uh, when one person's conscience calls them to, to live their faith in a way that another person's conscience disagrees with. How are they to, how are they to do that? And the one whose conscience is very clear condemns the one whose conscience is clear in another way. Paul wrote this in Romans 14. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. No, we, we are not called to judge in that way. What is it that someone would put before you as a measure of belonging to Christ? What would somebody put before you to make a declaration of judgment about your standing in God's family? It may be a good thing. It may be a worthy thing, a doctrine, a practice, a way of expressing faith in action. And that's all well and good until it becomes a tool for passing judgment. Then they've turned a shadow into a substitute savior. Even a good thing can become a bad thing when it's made into the most important thing. Your quiet time can't save you. Evangelism can't save you. Sabbath rest can't save you. Passionate worship can't save you. They're good things. They're worthy things. They're helpful things, but they are pointers, pointers to the presence of Christ. But if we cling to the shadows and not the substance, it's like eating the shadow of a hamburger. Who wants that? Nobody. Don't cling to the shadow, the pointer. Let it lead you to the substance because substitutes lack substance. The next problem we see is that substitutes lack connection. Look at verse 18. Paul says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So Paul's getting into a different category of substitutes here. The first category were these good things, things that God had once even commanded and required. But now he's talking about those who might be preaching or teaching to the church in Colossa about visions that they had or about asceticism, which is saying no to everything you can say no to, treating the body and and earthly things like they are inherently bad and just saying no to everything, or worshiping and trusting the power of, of other beings, angels, or we could add saints, or we could add celebrities, or we could add politicians, or we could even add church leaders. All these things turn our focus away from Christ and on to something else, and that is deadly. It is deadly. Look how deadly it is in verse 19. When they do this, they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, 
nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Looking to these things and accepting them as substitutes for the work of Christ is as deadly as the body being cut off from the head. Christ is the head, you are the body. And substitutes will call you, not necessarily to disconnect from the head and reconnect somewhere else. No, they're not that blatant. What they'll do is they say, if you want to connect to Christ, you've got to go through this. You've got to hear this revelation and follow this great teacher that that Prophet Susie or Reverend Bishop Billy Bob has out there. You've got to believe and understand the revelation, the vision that they have because God has so blessed their ministry that if you want to understand Jesus, you've got to go through them. Or if you want to connect to Christ, you have to say no to all these things and live as disciplined and pure a life as possible. Or you've got to pray to these saints. Or you've got to pray to your guardian angel this special prayer. Or they won't bless you and watch over you in the way that they need to. What they're doing is they're getting in between the body and the head. How does it work for you if something comes in between your body and your head? It doesn't work so well. It cuts off life and growth. And Paul is saying, do not let these substitutes get in between you. They lack connection. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You grow only when connected to Christ. And when you are connected to Christ, you will grow. You don't need anybody else stepping in You don't need a special disciplined way of life that somebody will train you in. You don't need somebody else's special message or word from God. You don't need special guardian spirits or angels or anybody else to connect you to Jesus. But pastor, what about those teachers and prophets and others who are receiving great visions from God these days? Shouldn't we hear what they have to say if God is speaking to them? Well, I can't speak for their visions or their conscience, but what I can tell you on the authority of God's word is whatever their vision is, you don't need it. Hebrews chapter one encourages us, saying long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's how it was. But now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Whatever you need to know, God has spoken. He has given it. And nobody else needs to add to it, supplement it, or distract you from it. A substitute will tell you that you need more. A substitute will tell you this is great, but it's not enough. You need this special word that I've received. You need this special practice I can tell you about. You need this special prayer that will help you. No, all they're doing is cutting you off from the God who has given you Jesus Christ for life and for growth. Beware of anything, beware of anything or anyone that tells you that Jesus is not enough. And notice how Paul sets this up in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on these things. 
Just like before with let no one judge you, he says, don't let anyone disqualify you. That word disqualify means to condemn, to judge as a failure. You ever, you ever play games with, um, with little kids who are clearly making up the rules as they go? I mean, if you've done it, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you might not even have any idea what this game is called, but they're just making up, no, 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 you have to go touch that tree before you get back here, so you're out. But you didn't tell me I had, well, no, but you have to. Yeah, that's what's going on here. It's, it's somebody saying, oh, no, you're out. You're disqualified. If you don't follow this path that I've laid for you, if you don't live this life of asceticism, if you are not under Bishop so-and-so's fabulous revelatory ministry, you are disqualified because that's necessary. And what that message is is that Jesus is not enough. And Paul is saying, no, they are not connected, and they are cutting off your connection. Don't let anyone change the rules or add the rules in a way that tells you you've lost because Christ is not enough and you don't have what you need. Christian books, good teachers, helpful practices, all have their place, and we thank God for them. But their place is only good if they are pointing you to and connecting you to and driving you to Jesus Christ and not standing in the way or taking his place. He is your source. So substitutes we see, they lack substance. And we've seen they lack connection. The last thing we see, the third problem with substitutes is they lack power. Look what Paul says in verses uh, 20 through 22. Why? Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. What Paul is describing here is, is human earthly taboos and superstitions. And his point is that, that we're talking about physical things here that, that are going to disappear as they're, you know, as they're consumed. Physical ideas about physical things coming from human minds. Why would we expect them to have eternal spiritual benefit? And the key here is the origin. These are human ideas. These are not from God's word. The Colossians were surrounded by cults and religions and superstitions, uh, worshiping even the elemental spirits, earth, air, water, fire, following gods and goddesses of nature and the world. And they would treat the world and material things and creatures as if they had a spiritual power on their own. Oh, don't eat that. If you eat that, you will be cursed. Don't, don't drink that. That's taboo. Well, if you touch this crystal, it will give you healing. If you carry this talisman, it's made of a special material, and it will bring you good luck. Oh, this place here, this is inhabited by spirits that we ought to fear. Thank God we are so much wiser today, right? No, I'm afraid not, brothers and sisters. Whether it's crystals or alcohol or even a cross on a chain, how easy is it to believe, as the world does, that physical things have a spiritual power that God has not given them, a power to hurt you or to help you. Is the pastor saying that I shouldn't have a cross around my neck? No, I'm not saying that. Let me clarify. 
That's fine. That's, that's fine. But if you carry it or wear it or hold it or use it or look to it, believing that it therefore gives you a spiritual benefit or power, then you have been deceived. You have been deceived. How easy is it to believe, as Paul says in verse 23, these things have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. An appearance of wisdom. They sound convincing. Yeah, it makes sense that if I keep certain materials and things out of my body and, 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 and avoid certain places and things that I might become holy. But Paul continues, despite the appearance of wisdom, he says they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says these things seem like they work, but they don't actually solve the problem. Makes me think of my time overseas when I lived in China and the, the campus that I was on had lots and lots of grass. And at certain times of year, the grass would just die and turn yellow and brown. But I noticed an interesting phenomenon that when a dignitary would be coming to visit the campus, suddenly we'd wake up the next morning and the grass was sparkling green. Had it just been healed overnight? No. As I noticed once, they had crews of people going through and spray painting fields of grass to make it green. It had the appearance of life and vitality, but they hadn't actually changed what was inside. These things have an appearance of wisdom. We think that if we just make a list of things that we have to say no to, and if we can say no to all the bad things in the world, we'll be holy. But that's not how holiness works. You know, the monks tried that for centuries. They withdrew from the world. They said no to everything. They denied themselves physical pleasure, sexual relationships. They denied flavor in their food. They even, some of them took vows of silence so they wouldn't talk. They said no to everything they could possibly say no to. And do you know what they discovered? They could still sin. They could still have pride. They could still have lust. They could still judge others in their hearts. And in fact, these things, living these lives, saying no to so many things can even open a door. Sin can take root in our hearts and open a door to pride and judgmentalism or insecurity and fear. I lived that way for 12 years as a Christian, believing that if I said no to enough things, I, I would make God happy. And what that created in me was two things at the same time. Pride over everybody else that wasn't as good as I was, because I'm pretty good. And fear that I had never done enough. Judgmentalism and insecurity. No amount of saying no to physical things could get that out of my heart. Being holy, being godly is not just about making a list and saying no to stuff. Becoming who God made you to be is accomplished by walking closely with Jesus, imitating him, loving what he loves, learning to value what he values, seeking first his kingdom, laying down your life. No list of prohibitions can do that for you. There is, brothers and sisters, nothing you can do to change a sinful heart. Nothing you can do to change a sinful heart. But thank God, as we heard in our assurance of pardon, God does that for you, doesn't he? He takes out the sinful heart and replaces it. 
Verse 20, Paul describes it in this way. If, you, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? The gospel, brothers and sisters, is not just that Jesus died for you. The gospel is that when Jesus died for you, you died. When he rose again, you rose. That's Paul's point here. When you were united to Christ, his death became yours and his resurrection became yours. His standing before the sinful things of the world is that he is dead to them. No no more do they have power. And you are one with him. And now those things are dead. That's Paul's point in Romans 6. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Just hang on there for a second. I'm not talking about something you have to make true. I'm not saying you still need to go out and be united to Christ so that you can, be, you can die to sin. No, I'm telling you according to what Paul is saying here, you, if you were indeed baptized into Christ, you died We were buried, therefore, were, already happened, buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The only way to change a sinful heart and leave sin behind is not to make a list of all the bad things in the world and stay away from them. The only way is to die to it. And that has been done for you in Jesus Christ. Nobody can give you a list of anything you need to do to add to what Christ has already done in leading you through death. Sin has no power over you because you died in Christ and rose again with him. Substitutes come in many different varieties. Some of them are sincere and well-intentioned, but they mistake the shadow for the substance. Some substitutes are are self-serving and even wicked, trying to take the place of Christ in your life, directing worship away from him. But they all share this in common. Everything that is a substitute would lead you to believe that Christ alone is not enough for you. That you need to do more. You need to be more. You need to add more to what Christ has done if God is going to accept you and be pleased. So I'm glad that This week, the timing has worked out that we follow this teaching, this study of Colossians 2 with the Lord's Supper. Because I cannot come come up with any concluding illustration or example or story of the sufficiency of Christ's work than the body and blood of your Savior broken for you, given for us, showing that He is enough. Let us pray and prepare our hearts to receive that promise today.